שלום וברכה. It's a pleasure every year to be able to come and learn with you and take the opportunity to share a little uh, a little bit of Torah with you as well. If you signed up for this shir, you notice the title. The title that's on the screen before you is a little more elaborate than the title that was in the program. Uh, the, the original title didn't fit in the uh, in the program itself. But I think this title gives a little more feeling to what the subject is about. Rather than looking at a parak or a story, uh, I have chosen this year in honor of the 50th anniversary of the unification of Yerushalayim Bismanenu to devote the shir to the question of the status of Yerushalayim both in the time of Tanakh and of course we'll see the implications uh, throughout history and in particular to discuss the question of dividing the kingdom of Israel along an unnatural fault line. The second half, the biblical significance of a united Yerushalayim we'll come back to later. But I want to start with the question of dividing the kingdom along an unnatural fault line, which of course makes the assumption that there is a natural fault line in which to divide the kingdom. The question is why divide the kingdom among an unnatural fault line, then we have to assume that there is a natural fault line. And that is essentially where I'd like to begin. The story of the split of the kingdom of Yudan Yisrael in Tanakh, which of course begins from the generation immediately following Shlomo HaMelech, the division of the kingdom into Yisrael and Yehuda, Yisrael in the north, Yehuda in the south. That kingdom, that split, essentially is the one of the primary focal points of the latter half of Sefer Melachim Aleph, Sefer Melachim Bet, and takes up a good part of the focus of the Nevi'im. But the assumption is that the roots of the division between Yehuda and Yisrael are actually much older than the division of the kingdom at the time of Rechavam and Yeravam. And so where I would like to begin this afternoon is going back to the roots of that split and explore what that division was and whether or not it changed and if it changed, why. So, allow me, this is the journey with which we are going to begin. This is a map of the, it's essentially a map of Sefer Yeshua Shoftim, of the division of the land of Israel by the tribes, as well as the orange, or the deeper orange versus the other, which is the uh, area of Israelite positions, the end of Sefer Yeshua. But more or less from this map, we can familiarize ourselves with the general location of each of the tribes of Israel as they were set in place by Yaakov, by Moshe, and eventually as certain circumstances in history led to certain changes. You'll notice that Shevet Dan appears twice, one in the area of Gush Dan today, on the left side by the coast, and the other in the north in the Bashan, or the Golan. The story of the migration of Dan is not our subject for today. But if you can get a sense of the division of the tribes, Yehuda in the south, there's a subject, there's a discussion about Shevet Shimon, which is not our issue for today, but essentially Shevet Shimon starts in the south, but very quickly they are shepherds, and we find them in Sefer Malachim already in the north, they migrate north at a later point in time. Shevet Yehuda in the south, Binyamin north of Yehuda, Ephraim north of Binyamin, Essentially, you have the center of the country, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Menashe, Bnei Rachel, Yehuda in the south, Issachar, Zvulun, Naphtali, Asher, and so on and so forth. We would think, given the nature of the description of the Jewish people in the Torah, as made up of 12 tribes, that come into the land of Israel and conquer the land of Israel as one, one would think, that we are essentially defined either as B'nai Yisrael or 
individual tribes. Until such time as the kingdom of Israel splits. However, we find already in Sefer Shoftim, there's indications of it in Sefer Yeshua too, which is more complex, but we certainly find in Sefer Shoftim, and certainly in the early part of Sefer Shmuel, that the tribes more or less coalesce into two groups with two identities. On the one hand, Yehuda, and on the other hand, all of the other tribes. Identified by the collective name Yisrael. Now we are familiar with these names. We're familiar with them because when the kingdom splits, Rechabam and Yerevam, those are the names of the kingdoms that we are familiar with. Machut Yudah in the south, Machut Yisrael in the north. Although the Nevi'im refer to it more often as Machut Ephraim. But nonetheless, that is the, uh, the division. However, it's clear that the identity of Yudah in the south, separate from the rest of the tribes, and we'll call the rest of the tribes Yisrael, is an earlier division. So, for example, Shirat Devorah, and we're not going to go through the text of all of these uh, sources, but Shirat Devorah, Devorah lists all the tribes of Israel that she expected to come and fight in the battle against Sisra, lists all the tribes, those who came, and then criticizes those who don't come, or who did not come, with one exception. One tribe left out of her Shira, neither for good nor for bad, that she simply does not mention them at all, and surprisingly, that is Shevet Yehuda. It's not clear why Devorah leaves out Yehuda. Perhaps there was no expectation that Yehuda would come and fight in the north, in Emek Israel, or perhaps something else is going on. The clearest indication that there is such a division is in the early part of Sefer Shmuel. And here I want to uh, pe- turn your attention to the source page. A couple of sources that I put at the top, sources 1, 2, and 3. Now you'll forgive me, normally I would just read them out of a Tanakh and we would w- explore Tanakh from one end to the other and, and, and have fun paging through it um, in the interest of time. Uh, I've collected many of these sources and put them on the page. If you will, uh, if you have a, need a translation, then the, and you have a Tanakh with a translation, you can follow along that way. I'll try to translate as we go. But sources one, two, and three essentially all refer to the same thing. These are sources that are all quotes from sections of Sefer Shmuel, and of course, Sefer Shmuel means that we are long before the division of the kingdom to Yudah and Yisrael. The first is Perak Yud Aleph. Perak Yud Aleph is the war between, led by Shaul Melech against Nachash Melech ben Amon in protection of and in support of Yevesh Gilad. And there it says that Shaul gathered all the tribes together, gathered by sent, the way in which it happens is a little bit too graphic for us right after lunch. But nonetheless, takes some of the bakar, cuts it up into 12 pieces, sends it out in the uh, National Postal Service uh, to the various tribes of Israel, gathers all the tribes together, together. Notice the term. Took a census of his army. from Israel. Thirty thousand from Yehuda. Are we one army or two? And the names Yisrael and Yehuda are significant. There's a similar description in the story of Amalek, which is not on your page, but there too it says Aseret Alafim. Sorry, Vayifkadem Bitlaim. Shaul gathered his forces in the war against 
Amalek, Shmuel Aleph, Perak Tadvav. He took a census of his forces, Mataim Elef Ragli, Vaseret Alafim et Ish Yehuda. 200,000 and another 10,000 from Yehuda. Shmuel Aleph, Perak Zion. Shmuel Aleph, Perak Zion, source two, is the story of Shaul, of David and Goliath. Shaul Amalek. David and Goliath. Vayakumu anshei Yisrael v'yuda. Sorry, um, it's the... Um, yeah, vayakumu anshei Yisrael. It's after David uh, kills Goliath and they begin to chase after uh, the plishtim. Vayakumu anshei Yisrael v'yuda vayariu vayirdifu at plishtim. One army or two. Shmuel Aleph Perek Yudchet, source three. David enters into the service of Shaul HaMelech. He's now serving in his army. God is with him. He's successful. Shaul is getting a little jealous. Are we one army or two? Are we one kingdom or two, Israel and Judah? So what I've hopefully demonstrated at this point is that the terms Israel and Judah, at least to identify two parts of the nation of Israel, two large sections of identity, Judah and Israel, appear in Tanakh long before, an entire Sefer before, the kingdom actually splits in the days of Rechavam ben Shlomo, three generations Later. Moreover, I started the assumption that if we're going to divide the kingdom, there needs to be, there, there should have been, or there could have been, a natural fault line by which to divide the kingdom. And just by the names of the tribes so far identified, one would think who is included in Judah? Judah. One would think, who is included in Yisrael? Everybody else. And in fact, that would make sense. Now, the clearest indication that we are actually dealing with not just a geographic division, but an actual rift in the people of Israel itself, is when the first attempt to split the kingdom takes place. The first attempt to actually split the kingdom into two, or to challenge the authority of the reigning king and to create two separate monarchies is not, in fact, Rechavam and Yeravam. first attempt to do so is after the years of Shaul's chasing of David, after the fall of Shaul, the very first attempt, David HaMelech establishes his kingdom in Hebron, in Judah, and there is a alternative kingdom that is being established, led by Ishboshet ben Shaul, which makes sense. Shaul felt that David was a challenge to his authority in the aftermath of the years of the civil war between David and Shaul. Shaul dies. The followers of Shaul would have put Shaul's son on his throne. David has established his kingdom. And the first split takes place. And what you have... We'll come back to that. What you have is the following scenario. Some of these maps you have in your booklet, in your source booklet. Some are not, but this one happens to be at the back. But I want to talk. I want to look at the psukim in source four. The Avner ben Ner, Sar Tzva Asher LeShaul, Lakach Et Ish Boshet Ben Shaul, VeAvireu Machanai. Avner ben Ner takes Ish Boshet Ben Shaul. He's now establishing a conflicting alternative, or what he believes to be the, the primary kingdom, David is the renegade. These are geographic names of areas in Israel. Malchut Ishboshet includes and I think it's logical to assume it would include the geographic areas Abraham what east of the Yarden, the north, the Galil, the Golan, Emek Israel, Ephraim in the center of the country, and Binyamin. 
and all of Israel, Al Yisrael Kulo, whereas Ben Arbaim Shana Ishboshet Ben Shana Ben Shaul Bemocho, Al Yisrael, Ushtaim Shni Malach, Achbet Yehuda Ayu Achare David. And here we have a clear indication that the kingdom splits. Yehuda in the south, everybody else in the north, everybody else, including, and this is the critical point of the presentation, including Binyamin, follows Ishboshet, Yehuda follows David. So, simple question is, why does Binyamin follow the rest of Israel in the north? That is what we call a rhetorical question. The real question is, why wouldn't they? Hishboshet, Shaul. Shaul is from Shevet Binyamin. The fight, the conflict that has led to this split was between Shaul and David. And if it was a conflict between Shaul and David, then the natural rift, the natural fault line of that rift should be between who is the symbol of the conflict of the loyalty to Shaul? Binyamin. Who is the symbol of the loyalty to David? Judah. And so it's natural to assume that the, the point of the natural fault line along the Jewish people at that time should have been between Judah and Benjamin. And what you have here is a map from the Dat Mikra uh, Tanakh and the Atlas that shows the different kingdoms. And of course, if you look carefully at the line that divides the two kingdoms, you will see that it goes where? Right, right through the city of Yavus. In the city of Yavus, of course, we know Yavus is Yerushalayim. We'll come back to that point in a moment. If you come back to this map, you will see that if we look at Sheva Binyamin, just the geographic territory of Sheva Binyamin, Sheva Binyamin is bounded on, both, on the south by Yavus or Yerushalayim, in the north by Betel. Essentially, uh, Binyamin is just north of Yehuda and Yavus is on the boundary border between them. We'll come back to that point a little bit later. So is my assumption clear? My assumption and the thesis with which we are working for today's year is that there is a natural fault line in the Jewish people, at least for the better part of close to a century. The natural fault line is between Yehuda and Yisrael, where Yisrael includes everybody from Binyamin North. It makes sense. It makes sense for Ben Rachel to be together, Ephraim, Menashe, Binyamin, and Yudah, of course, stands alone. And here's where the story becomes complicated. Because, surprise, surprise, despite decades, if not centuries, of identification of Yudah versus everybody else, and everybody else, including Binyamin, when the kingdom ultimately splits in the days of Rechavam and Yeravam, Binyamin is included in Machut Yudah. And that split, whoops, this is a side-by-side map. On the left is Machut Ishboshet in the north and Machut David in the south. The map on the right is the split between Yudah and Yisrael in the days of Rechavam. And you'll see that the point in which the two kingdoms split is where? Betel. And of course, you know the story of Yerevam and uh, in, in Sefer Malachim, you understand what the significance of that is. All right. And here's where the story gets complicated. For from the split of the kingdom until the Churban, hundreds of years, the kingdoms are split, Binyamin stays with Yehuda, despite the fact that the conflict started with Shaul from Binyamin in a war against David, Binyamin stays with Yehuda. There will be several times in the course of the history of these two kingdoms where they will be at war with each other. And Binyamin will always remain loyal to Shevet Yehuda and Machut Yehuda. And the question that one has to ask 
is why. That would seem to be an unnatural place to split the kingdom. That is what I refer to as an unnatural fault line. That's part one. Part two is a little bit of biblical math. So let's do a little bit of biblical math. I want to turn our attention to the Nevoah of Achiyah Shiloni and the moment in which Achiyah Shiloni tells Yerevan ben that he's going to split the kingdom apart. And so you have that in source 5, Melechem Aleph Perak Yud Aleph, and you even have an English translation side by side. In the field, wearing a new cloak. It's unclear who's wearing the new cloak. Not my issue for now. Let's assume Achiyah Shulani is wearing a new cloak. Achiyah takes his cloak. Tears it into 12 pieces. Yeravam, you take ten pieces, I'm giving you ten tribes. So far the math is, uh, okay? Okay. And one tribe I will keep for him, for the sake of David, who I promised, Yushalayim, Machut Yehuda, Machut David, let him have one tribe. So far we're good? 10 plus 1 equals? I don't know about you, but in my version of biblical math, 10 plus 1 equals, how many pieces of clothing do we have? 12. Am I missing something? You take 10, I get 1, we have 12. And he repeats the math at the end of the paragraph. You get 10. And you get 10, he gets 1 for the sake of David. 10 plus 1 equals 12. Yishlaim is on the border, fair, but still, how many tribes are mentioned here? Lachora, there are 11 tribes mentioned here. Lachora, there's a tribe missing. So, as correctly pointed out, Yishlaim is on the border between Yudan and Binyamin. And so, the Mepharshim suggests that the one tribe here referred to is in fact really two tribes. And if you look at the Mepharshim, Radak, Mitzurat David, Rabag, they all essentially follow along the same lines with variations. V'ashevet echad, referring to Yehuda, uvin yamin, choshev l'shevet echad, bavur shiyem yuchadim benachala u'b'yerushalayim. Because they were connected in the Nachala, connected in Yerushalayim, connected in all kinds of ways. Yehuda and Benjamin, so natural, so natural allies between them. After all, David and Shaul loved each other so dearly and were so good friends and so supportive of each other. Yehuda and Benjamin are such natural tribes to put together and to count them as one. It makes sense for Yehuda and Benjamin to be counted as one. Makes sense, right? 10 plus 1 equals 12. This dilemma has perplexed many of the Mepharshim, or share with you a p- possible alternative reading of the text that would resolve some of the biblical math. I heard this once from Rav Yoh Ben-Nun. Uh, actually makes a lot of sense. The Mepharshim talk about something referred to, the Ibn Ezra in particular uses the phrase, Moshech atzmo v'acher imo. Moshech atzmo v'acher imo is a form of parshanut, in which we assume that there are certain words in a text which, for the sake of the flow of the text, are not repeated, but they need to be. From an interpretation point of view, we need to take those phrases and repeat them line by line in order to get the full meaning of the text. And then as he uses this principle many, many times, I'll give you a couple of very simple examples, and then I'll show you what it does for us here. Take a look at source 6, 
ויבן משה מזבח, ויקרא שמו השם ניסי. קוראים לזה מזבח, and he calls it God. Odd. Says Yevon Ezra, Milat Mizbeach Moshech Atzmo Ve'acher Imo Ve'chenu Mizbach Hashem. In other words, the way you read this text is, and I have it on the, have it on the source page? No. But the way you would read it is, Ve'ikra Moshe Mizbeach, Ve'even Moshe Mizbeach, Ve'ikra Shmo Mizbach Hashem Nisi. The Mizbeach of my God. Similarly, uses this explanation for source eight. Pasuk in Vayikra v'Zechartiyat Friti Yaakov v'Afed Friti Yitzchak v'Afed Friti Avraham Ezkor v'Aretz Ezkor. If you think about the grammar of this sentence, there are words missing. V'Afed Friti Yitzchak what? So says the Eben Ezra again. You have it in source nine on the next page. Vezachatiyat briti moshech atzmo v'acher imo. V'chenu vezachatiyat briti et brit Yaakov. And so you would read the pasuk, and here's a number of examples. Vezachatiyat briti et brit Yaakov. Vezachatiyat briti et Yitzchak. Ezkor ve'afet briti et Avraham. Ezkor ve'aretz ezkor. You just have to take the words in the beginning of the phrase and apply them accordingly. Uh, one of the great debates that appears in the pages of Megadim, forgive me for moving quickly, but this is more background than, uh, than the substance. We'll get to the substance in a moment. One of the great debates between Rav Medan and Rav Benun that appears in the pages of Megadim is the famous debate about Yosef and his brothers. And one of the feature points of that debate is the phrase that appears in Sefer Breshit, Vaykra Yosef et Shem HaBachor Minasheh, if I read it directly, it means God, Yosef calls his first son Menasha. Nashani, God, has enabled me to forget all my troubles and the house of my father. To which Rav Yobinun says, that means that Yosef was acknowledging that God had finally, with giving him a son, had given him the, the ability to forget his father's house to cut the ties and to start anew. To which Rav Medan, in his, refrain, in his uh, counter-argument, says, that's not how you read the text. The way you read the text is, Nashani Olekimet Kol Amali, Vet Kol Amal Beit Avi. It's based on a psikta that the, what he was acknowledging, that he was able to forget, was that Sarot Mi Beit Aviv. Enabling him to forget is the troubles of his father's house. The way you read the text, Nashani Alakim et Kol Amali, et Kol Amal Beit Avi. We apply this principle here, then what we get is the following. Vashevet Ha'achad Yielo, Leman Avdi David, one tribe I will keep for Machut Yuda, for the sake of my servant David, after all, my loyalty to David, my promise to David, and my commitment to David means that he will remain a Melech Yisrael, and his seed will remain on his throne. And so Shevet, one Shevet has to remain a place for David's children to remain kings. The Shevet Ha'echad Yelo repeat the phrase for the sake of Yerushalayim. Ha'ira shebacharti b'amikolu shivtei Yisrael. And if I read the, par- the verse this way, I end up with, in fact, two tribes. One tribe, Laman of Didavin, and the other, Laman Yerushalayim. And now I have 10 plus 2 equals 12. And now we break it down. Which tribe would remain for the sake of David? Shevet Yehuda. And which tribe would remain for the sake of Yerushalayim? Annexed. And I use that term intentionally. Annexed to Malchut Yehuda, by none other than the Navi himself, Benjamin, in order to preserve the integrity of Yerushalayim, subject we will come back to momentarily. Is everything clear up until this point? All right. The remainder of this year is essentially an attempt to understand 
why it was so important for the Navi to annex Shevet Binyamin to Malchut Yehuda. And that's essentially the starting point of our discussion. I'm going to take it as a given. That the natural fault line would have put Binyamin in the north. After all, Shaul was the symbol of the conflict. By declaration of the Navi, and then by the judgment of history, Binyamin gets moved from Shevet, from Machut Yisrael to Machut Yehuda, which makes all the difference in the world. All right. I want to come back to a bigger, broader question. Why Yerushalayim? What was the significance of Yerushalayim? And what is the meaning of Yerushalayim in the story of David HaMelech? Why was it so important for Achiyah Shulani to ensure that Sheva Binyamin would remain part of Machut Yehuda? Now, of course, Yerushalayim has a long history. Who doesn't know the history of Yerushalayim? From the creation of the world, right, Evan Ashtia, to the Brit with Avram Avinu, to the Makom of the, uh, of the Akedah, to the place of Yaakov's Tefillah, the Sulam Beit El, the Sulam up to Shemaim, Ein Zekiim Beit Elakim, So, who, of course, doesn't know the history of Yerushalayim? The answer is everybody. Meaning, the mystery of Yerushalayim in the first half of the story is that for 400 years, until David HaMelech, for 400 years we have lived in this land from the days of Yeshua, and not one individual leader or tribe of Israel has ever conquered, is not the term I'm looking for, because I'll see and show you in a moment that he conquered it several times, but nobody ever settled in Yerushalayim. Nobody ever gave Yerushalayim a second thought. In fact, Yerushalayim is conquered in Sefer Yoshua, and it conquered again in Sefer Shoftim, at least the text repeats the story, twice. And in both instances, we conquered and moved on. And you have to ask yourself the question, they get to Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh, we make such a big deal out of Yerushalayim. They get to Yerushalayim, Makom HaKedah, Makom of Yaakov's dream, the Beitel. they get to Yerushalayim, they conquer, they move on. When David comes to Yerushalayim, it's a Jebusite stronghold, Yer Yavuz. I'll show you a couple of fascinating stories. Take a look, for example, in Source 13. Source 13 is a Brief quote from a summary in Sefer Yoshua of all the kings that Yoshua had conquered. The details of the actual conquest of the king of Yerushalayim and the army of Yerushalayim is not a issue. It has to do with the uh, war in the south. Yoshua has three main conquests in Sefer Yoshua. One is Yericho, the secondary conquest of Ai, which is a which is an adjunct or a tangent from Yericho, then he has a war with a group of kings in the south, and a war with a group of kings in the north. More or less a summary of 12 chapters of Yeshua. And then there's a list of all the 31 kings that Yeshua conquered. These are kings that belong, kings of cities, city-states. And amongst the list of the kings that, are, that appear in Pasuk Tet, Melech Yericho Echad, Melech Ha'ai Echad, Shemitzat Betel, Melech Yerushalayim Echad, Melech Hebron Echad. They conquered Yerushalayim or didn't conquer Yerushalayim. King of Yerushalayim was one of those kings that came to fight in the war in the south, and in an open field, Yeshua and his army bested the, 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 the alliance of those kings. Melech Yerushalayim is one of the kings we conquered. Sefer Shoftim, Perak Aleph, Source 14, by Lachamu Bene Yudab Yerushalayim, by Yilkedurta, did they conquer Yerushalayim? Conquered Yerushalayim. Shoftim Perak Yud Zayin, sorry, Perak Yud Tet, source 15, famous story of Pelegesh Begiva. Story of Pelegesh Begiva, I'm assuming it's familiar more or less to us. If not, that's one, another one of those stories that you can't really read after lunchtime because um, it's a little bit too graphic. But nonetheless, at one of the pieces of the story, is a person who's traveling, the, the, the quote-unquote villain of our story, is traveling from Bethlehem in the south back to his home 
in the north in the Shevet Ephraim, and there it says that they get to the the traveling. The sun is setting. It's nighttime. Dangerous to travel at night. Velo ava ish lalun vayakom vayelech vayavo ad nochach yevus. He Yerushalayim. They get to Yevus, the Jebusite city of Yerushalayim. They get to Yavuz, the sun is setting, they don't know what to do. Let's take a detour and go and sleep in this Jebusite city. Can't go to Yavuz. It's a Jebusite city. It's not an Israelite city. These are not our brethren. We will not get a proper welcome there. Let's go on to Giv'ah. Where, of course, if you know the rest of the story, you know how Jewish and wonderful and warm and welcome they were received there. That's part of the tragedy. But for our purposes, what is Yavuz? Yushalayim conquered twice in the course of 400 years? And the answer is, it's a Jebusite city. So what happened? No one settled. The war was a war with Melech Yushalayim in the fields. They conquered, they got there, they moved on. And you have to wonder, where are all of the traditions of Sefer Breshit on the origins and the sanctity and the special quality of Yerushalayim? David HaMalach himself writes in Tehillim Perakuf Lamedbet that he was searching his whole life to find the place for the Mikdash. I'm looking and looking and looking, desire to find the place for God's Shechina to rest, searching for Yushalayim, and yet he doesn't find it. Which means that whatever all the traditions we have from Sefer Bereshit about the kedusha of that place are all there, but the identity of the place is an unknown. And if that's true, then it only hi- highlights the question: Why did David conquer Yerushalayim? What was Yerushalayim if it wasn't Makoma? Akedah, the place of the Akedah and the place of the Eben and the foundation of the sanctity of the world. One more quote, and then we will begin to put the pieces of the story together. And that is a quote from Perak Chet of Sefer Malachim, source 17. Shlomo HaMelech builds the Beit HaMikdash. David's dream fulfilled by Shlomo. Sometimes our children fulfill our dreams for us. It's not uncommon. In that moment, we find the following declaration. I understand, says Shlomo, that I am at this moment fulfilling the dream of my father. Thank God for this opportunity. Version of Shachianu says Shlomo, Minayom he's quoting God. Minayom lo mikol shmisha. Four hundred and eighty years from Yitzhak Mitzrayim. No, tr- no, at no point in all of that history has God chosen a city in which to build His bayit. Until now, Fevchar David liot alami alami Yisrael. Until now, when I finally chose David as my leader. Somebody have a problem with this verse? There's an asymmetry in this verse which is very complex. Very perplexing. Meaning, 
What should it say? Lo b'charti be built the Beit Hamikdash. This we're talking about the establishment of the Beit Hamikdash. Lo b'charti be'ir from all the, the place, the phrase that appears in Sefer in Sefer Dvarim so many times. Makom asher evchai mikol shitei Yisrael asum shmi sham. The choice of that place. Finally, have chosen that place. Lo all of those centuries. Lo b'charti be'ir. I did not choose the city yet. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting to choose the right city until finally I chose. David, it should say, until I chose, you shall I. But what's clear is, God, at this moment, did not choose Yerushalayim. God chose David. David chose Yerushalayim. And that's essentially the message here, is that Yerushalayim was a choice, a choice made by David. And the question of why David made that choice is so critical for us to understand the significance not only of the Beit HaMikdash, but of Yerushalayim, and my initial question, of the role of Shevet Benjamin. So let's come back to this issue. Why, for 400 and something years, did they get Yerushalayim twice and pass it by? It's an afterthought that nobody cares about, it's a Jebusite city, it has no significance to them. It's not mentioned anywhere up until this point. What is it about Yerushalayim that they so ignore? To answer this question, I want to show you two psukim. that are mirror images of each other. Sources 18 and 19. Source 18 is a list of the places in Sefer Yeshua, a list of the places that were unconquered, places that were conquered and were settled, and places that were not settled. Pasuk Samach Gimel in Parak Tadvav, Source 18, second half, Vet HaYivusi, Yoshevei Yerushalayim, Lo Yachlu Bnei Yehuda Lo Rishan, Vayeshev HaYivusi Bnei Yehuda B'Yerushalayim Min HaYom HaZeh. Sorry, Ad HaYom HaZeh. Meaning, what is the significance of this verse? Bnei Yehuda were unable, lo yochlu, to conquer the Jebusites of Yerushalayim, and so you Bnei Yehuda, and so they remained, the Yevusi remained living amongst Bnei Yehuda until this day. There are two conclusions in this verse. Number one, why didn't they conquer Yerushalayim? was too hard. Number two, and we know from the story uh, and the stories of the archaeological search for how David eventually conquers it, that it was a very difficult city to conquer. I'll show you in a moment. I'll show you now. That's essentially a drawing of the ancient Jebusite uh, stronghold and the fortress around it and the wall around it and the valleys around it. And you get a sense this is a strong, this is a hard city to conquer. Lo <laughs> But there's another conclusion here as well, which is, who is responsible and to what Shevet was responsible for the conquest of Yerushalayim? Yehuda. Now turn your attention to source 19. Sorry, source 20, which is the first paragraph of Sefer Shoftim. Veta Yevusi, Yoshev Yerushalayim, Lo Horishu Bnei Binyamin, Vayeshev Ayivusi et Bnei Binyamin Yerushalayim Ad Hayom Hazeh. Which means, it's exactly the same passage, word for word, it's a mirror image, deja vu, with one exception. The reference here is to Shevet Binyamin. So whose responsibility was it to conquer Yerushalayim? Was it Shevet Yuda or was it Shevet? Binyamin. So, picture in your mind's eye for a moment the con- the conference, the military conference taking place in the days of Yeshua, where they're dividing up the land by tribes. They send cartographers throughout the land of Israel to map out the land and to define the territories and to tell each tribe, you're responsible for going and conquering and settling this area and these cities. And the second half of Sefer Yeshua is essentially all about that. And they get to this city called Yevus. 
and Yudah, and it's listed in the tribes of Yudah, and it's listed in the tribes of Binyamin. So what happens? The head of Shevet Yudah gets up and he says, my dear brethren, Shevet Binyamin, it's all yours. And Shevet Binyamin gets up and says, my dear brethren, Bnei Yudah, it's all yours. Who wants to start with that? Take all the layers of Yishalayim away. Yavus is a mountain surrounded on all sides by a valley, surrounded by a wall and a fortress. And it's not so easy to conquer. And so in the end, nobody wants to touch it. And so they come, the one time they battled Melech Yerushalayim is in the open field of Yerushalayim when the king of Yerushalayim took his army out to help the people of Givon. But to go and to start up with a fortress, who, who wants to bother? Until finally, David comes, conquers it, and builds here David. But this story is not the whole picture. understand the whole picture, we have to go back to a little bit of the significance of what's happening in the days of David HaMalach, and in particular, what's happening in the beginning of Sefer Shmuel Bet. So for our purposes, sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself, for our purposes, I just want to do a quick overview of the period of history leading up to the beginning of Sefer Shmuel Bet. We know that from the very early times of the settlement of Israel, Yeshua charged each tribe with the responsibility to go and to conquer and settle in their tribal region. Some do, some don't, part of the dynamic of Sefer Yeshua. But over the course of time, leaders arose within Israel, each of the Shoftim, to deal with various challenges that took place at that time. What's unique about Sefer Shoftim and what's common to, well, and what's interesting about all of the various Shoftim that we have is that they are literally scattered from one end of the country to the other. Almost, almost, and there's some debate about it, but it's almost the point where there's no two tribes, there's no two Shoftim from the same tribe. Debatable, but almost to that point, to that point, there's a Gemara to that effect in source 22. Every Shevet had a Shofet. More or less, the Shoftim of Sefer Shoftim are analogous to the Nasi in the Torah. With the, with the role of the Nasi of each Shevet in the Torah, more or less is the role of the, of the Shofet of each tribe in Sefer Shoftim. There is certainly nothing along the lines of a sense of one nation, one nationality, one leadership. At the core of the request for Malchus, at the core of the request for a king from from Shaul, sorry, from Shmuel, at the core of the request from a king from Shmuel was the desire to unify the people of Israel, to unify all the tribes under one banner, one army, one king. I throw that out, out as a statement. There's much more to support that, su- that suggestion, but it's important to understand. Shaul was mandated and given the opportunity to unite the tribes of Israel under one banner. The story of Shaul is not our subject for today. However, at the end of Shaul's life, clearly that unity is now beginning to fall apart. What Shaul tried to do to bring together national army, hundreds of thousands from all the tribes of Israel, but there's a crack in that unity. And that crack is Israel on the one hand, Judah on the other. That crack eventually leads to the rift between Shaul and Benjamin, a rift which comes to the head with, in the aftermath of Shaul's death, with the appointment of an heir in competition to the declaration of the Navi, an heir to the throne, Ishboshet and David are now two kings reigning, ruling in two different parts of the city. It's a tragic moment in history. It's a terrible, you'll forgive me, bloody period of history. I mean that in both literally and slang. It is a civil war with 
a very costly civil war. And then, at the end of the story, Perak in Sefer Shmuel Bet, Perak, let's say the one through four is essentially the war, the aftermath of the war, and um, the attempt to uh, deal, to appease Perak Dalid. If you turn to Shmuel Bet, Perak, end of Perak Dalid, Beginning of Perak Hay, actually. Uh, this is also on the source page in source 23. After the war with Ishboshet, after Ishboshet dies, after the war is over, all of the tribes of Israel come to David. In Hebron. Why Hebron? That's where David has established his throne. We are your flesh and blood. Who's speaking to him? The representatives of Shifta Yisrael. Who, if you remember, that one of the first quotes I shared with you was in the days of Shaul Melech, when David was service was a servant in Shaul's kingdom, and it said, actually, I quote, give you give you one quote. It said it several times that the people of Yudah and Yisrael loved David. David was very popular. David had the loyalty of the population of the populace from the word go. One of the reasons why Shaul mistrusted him so. Even once upon a time, when you served in Shaul's kingdom, and you were a general in his army, or a captain in his army, you were the hero of the story. You were the hero on the battlefield. You clearly demonstrated your strength. Of course, that also was part of the tragedy, because that led to the famous song of the Benot, of the, the song of the women when they sang tragic song that led to such tragedy you were appointed by God you were appointed by the Navi to reign over all of Israel all the Ziknei Yisrael came to David in Hebron they made a brit with him. This is the moment when they finally come together, unite the tribes of Israel, bring them together into one kingdom. David is now going to reign over the united kingdom of Israel and Judah. This is so important. The division never goes away. The division never goes away. But he will reign over a united kingdom of two kingdoms that have been at war with each other for decades. Judah and Israel. And then we have a verse which is a summary it's sort of inserted into the middle, but it's kind of a summary of the implication of this moment. Ben Shloshim Shanad David Bimocho, very similar to the beginning of the reign of every king in Sefer Malachim. It tells us how old they were when they took the throne and how long they reigned for. In as an introduction, this is part two of David's life as king. Part one was in Hebron. Part two is in Yerushalayim. Ben Shloshim Shanad David Bimocho, Arbaim Shana Malach. Reigned in total for 40 years. Bechevron Malacha Yehuda, Sheva Shanim Shisha Chodashim. Seven years, six months he reigned in Yehuda. Uv Yushalayim, which we haven't gotten to yet, but Yushalayim is where we will eventually be. 
מלאך 33 שנה על כל ישראל ויהודה. He will reign over the united kingdom of Israel and Judah. Not one kingdom. It's one kingdom that is an alliance between two. Critical moment. Critical moment. What does David do with it? What's the first act that David is going to take as the newly appointed king of a united kingdom. Vayelech ha-melech v'anashav Yerushalayim ala Yevusi Yoshvei ha-aretz Vayom ala-david l'mol Lo tavo hena ki mesircha ha-evrim v'apishim l'mol Yavo David hena Vayelkot David et mitzudat Zion hi ir David Vayomer David v'yamor Komake Yevusi v'yiga b'tzinor The rest of the story of the conquest of Yerushalayim is a story into itself comes to Yavus, Yavus challenge him, you can't come here, David says, anybody, all who, Yigabat Sinor, anybody who conquers Yerushalayim, what the Yigabat Sinor is a major discussion amongst Mepharshim, amongst archaeologists, amongst contemporary commentaries, amongst the Chachamim of Mechalet Herzog, unclear exactly what it means, but at the beginning of, Yush- of the conquest of Yerushalayim begins. And this is what David does. Now these are the Pesukim in Divrei Hayamim, which are not on your source page. Same story, a little bit more in detail in Divrei Hayamim. Ha'elech David v'cho Yisrael Yerushalayim. He Yivus, v'sham ha'yivusi yoshvei ha'aretz. He comes to Yivus, where the Jebusites were. V'yamru yoshvei Yivus l'david l'tapolahena. You can't come here. V'yelkod David et mitzudat tzion hi'ir David. David sets it up as a challenge for his general, who can conquer Yerushalayim. The rest, as they say, is history. Conquers the city of Yavuz, turns it into the fortress of Ir David, and eventually, you can see the palace of David and Malach at the top of the hill, and eventually on that hill will be built the Beit HaMikdash itself. So I come back to the question of what led David to Yerushalayim. And if I'm assuming, if I took it as an assumption at the beginning that he didn't go to Yerushalayim because it was the place of the Akedah, and he didn't go to Yerushalayim because it was the place of uh, Yaakov's dream, why did he go to Yerushalayim? So I set all the pieces in place goes to Yishlein because it was, in the language of politics, no man's land. Neither Shevet Yudah nor Shevet Benjamin wanted it. And it was a border city between Yudah and Benjamin. The very reason neither wanted it was both the challenge of its conquest and its territory. It sat on the border between two tribes that, remember, borders in those days were not lines on a map. Borders were a list of cities. They had one city that belonged to two tribes that essentially was a shared city. So shared city means they can fight over it. Shared city means that they can both ignore it. And it was left unconquered. Now why is it so important for David to go to Yerushalayim and Dafka to Yerushalayim? At this point, this should be an easy question. Because he needs to unite the two kingdoms. And the symbol of Shmachut Yisrael is Shevet Binyamin. And the symbol of Machut Yudah is Shevet Yudah. These two tribes led the war. They were at war with each other for decades, if not centuries. Go back to Pilagish Begivah. And David needs to unite them together. And so Yerushalayim, this border city, essentially by moving his capital, he cannot continue to be king over all of Israel and keep his throne in Hebron. That would not make sense. On the other hand, he can't move to the middle of Shevet Binyamin or the middle of Shevet Ephraim because that would not be fair to Shevet Yudah. So he goes to no man's land. But no man's land that sits in the middle, on the border between these two warring tribes in an attempt to unite the kingdom. 
When we said earlier that God did not choose Yerushalayim, God chose David. David chose Yerushalayim. Essentially what that means was that God chose Yerushalayim because Yerushalayim represented to him the unity of the people of Israel, the unity of the tribes of Israel. That's what David saw in Yerushalayim. A place where he could bring the two warring factions of Judah and Yisrael together, Binyamin and Judah. And here I want to add one postscript to our shir, in part because I have a postscript to add, and in part because I can't really end early, that would be terrible. <laughs> At the beginning I suggested, and we come back to the verse that was so complex, biblical math. I suggested that for the sake of David, it was important that Yudah remain part of Machut Yudah. That goes without saying. But I also suggested that it was a decision of the Navi, or a decision of God expressed by the Navi, to annex Binyamin to Machut Yudah. And essentially the reference here to being that the addition of Sheva Benyamin to Machut Yudah was necessary to preserve the integrity of Yerushalayim. Because what would have been the alternative? What would have been the alternative? Think about it in these terms. In the history of, hum- of modern civilization, are there examples where the capital city of a country was chosen in order to unite various conflicting parts of a country together and place that border literally on the boundary between the two countries. Washington, D.C., Ottawa in Canada, if anybody knows the history of British and French Canada. It's not uncommon. That's exactly what David did. He put his capital, he put the place of the Beit HaMikdash on the border between these two tribes because he wanted to unite the kingdom. What would have happened? Not just to Machut Yudah. Machut Yudah could survive a split along the original fault line. You could go back to Hebron. But what would have happened to Yerushalayim if the kingdom would have split along the original fault line through Yavuz? A border city between two kingdoms that at times were at war with each other, who would go to Yerushalayim? Who would go to the Beit Mikdash? Who would go to the Alavega? If it sits on the border between Yudah and Yisrael. And so it was critical. Look what Yerav Ben Nevat does when he wants to pull the people away from going back to Yerushalayim. And he puts the Agalim in Beit El in order to prevent the Ali al imagine if the border had been in the boundary of Yerushalayim and the Beit HaMikdash. Which Chazal said was divided between the two tribes equally. Yerushalayim would have lost its status, the Beit HaMikdash would have lost its integrity, nobody would have gone to Ali al Think, and here for a moment I'm going to digress into a little bit of contemporary history. Think, Yerushalayim, between 1948 and 1967, the analogy is not exactly complete, because of course this is between two Jewish kingdoms, but there were times when these kingdoms were at war with each other. And the status of Yushalayim as the place of the Mikdash would have lost all integrity. And so, for the sake of Yushalayim, Naman Yushalayim, the Navi takes an extraordinary step of annexing Shevet Binyamin and adding him to Shevet Yudah and Machut Yudah. And to their credit, Benjamin goes along. Benjamin was the symbol of the rift. Benjamin goes along because they understand that what's at stake is the Mikdash itself. And now I understand the Parak and Tehillim that we say, Shira Ma'alot Kuf Bet, 
Shur Ma'alot David, Samachti Be'omim Li Beit Hashem Nelech, to go to the Beit HaMikdash. This is not on your source pages, I believe. Nonetheless, we know this parak. Omdota Yudagleinu Bishadayach Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim Habnuya, Ke'ir Shechubrala Yachdav. Yerushalayim, the place, the role of, the, of uniting the Jewish people, uniting Shevet Yudah and Benjamin. And I'll add one more sentence. By dividing the kingdom along an unnatural fault line, the Navi does one more thing. And that is he creates a magnet. Because you cannot divide the tribes of Rachel, the children of Rachel, forever. And he creates a magnet to draw back the northern tribes of Israel. Because if it was divided along a natural fault line, the threat would be that this division would be an eternal one. If you rift, rip the people apart between the children of Rachel and the children of Leah, you create a rift that is eternal. If you create a split that has Benjamin on one side and B'nai Ephraim and Menashe on the other, you create a magnet that hopefully will bring the rest of the Jewish people and the rest of the tribes of Israel back together. Laman achai v'rayai adabrana shalom bach. Le man beta shemulakenu avaksha tov lach.